welcome to another episode of The Dumb Will Speak. Today we're going to be doing something that we like to call defining our terms. My name is Roy. And I'm Jalen. And today our term for discussion is soteriology. To put it short, the Oxford languages, if you were to pop it up on your Google search, first thing you're going to get is soteriology, the study of salvation. And that's all to say. It'll say a theological term, it'll say a noun, and it'll say the study of salvation. But there are so many things encompassed in that. I would put it this way. Your understanding of Christology, your understanding of Trinitarianism, your understanding of eternity, all of it stems from your soteriology. Wouldn't you say, Chalen? Yeah, and, and it, yes, I would wholeheartedly agree. And it also boils down to, you know, we discussed this in eschatology the hermeneutic effects that there needs to be a very important th- this when you de- when your hermeneutic is right on salvation it affects the hermeneutic on a vast array of other things when we look at verses we look at context when we look at these writers when they're writing it um, it affects it you know it it does it just you know that that and it, and you're right you always said it you know our view of everything is affected by hermeneutic but this is one of the ones of importance because we as said. Uh, earlier in our previous episode, um, one of the things, you know, we have different modes of salvation as far as denominationally goes. And some of them, they have church on the side, but they're not church, such as uh, some of them believe that you're not saved until you're baptized. That So that, therefore, it's a work salvation. So it is very important. This is a This is a primary doctrine that we must agree upon if we're going to be brothers in Christ. I'm going to say this is maybe the most important thing we've ever covered because eternity is at stake here. Absolutely. So it's the most important thing we've ever covered. And with that, I will say that I am coming at this with humility. I don't know it all. I don't know all the ins and outs. I don't know all the terms. I I wouldn't understand everything that's been written on soteriology as as far as from, from historically. I wouldn't understand the ins and outs of the systematic theology and, and how people get to where they get, but I know what the Bible itself says, and I tend to lean towards, well, what does the text itself say, and what does it mean? And you define your terms from that, and I try to do that in my own thinking and certainly in teaching or, or presenting things to other people, whether they are saved or lost, whether they've been Christians for 20 years or they've been Christians for, for two months. I want to try to make it as simple as possible, but I'm not going to dumb it down either. We are going to discuss some things and as we go along. And in our previous episode, our general episode that we recorded earlier today, we did say that when, as we, our purpose for this series, because it's going to lead into a series on soteriology. This is just the introduction and defining our terms. But as we go through this over time, and it may take the rest of the year to cover all the things we want to recover, because I know there's going to be some branches that we're going to, have to go off into. There'll be some her- heresies that we'll discuss because bad Christology led to a bad no. view of soteriology, and bad soteriology led to bad Christology, et cetera, et cetera. They're hand in hand. We're going to find a lot of people that we're going to talk about, and then when we get into reform theology, and when we get into later Arminian, there's so many things we're going to cover in this that we're not going to try to do it all today. Don't worry about that, folks, as you're listening. This is not a four-hour episode. We'll keep it as, as pithy as possible. This is a 30,000-foot view is the way we say yes, it. Yes, this is our general overview. This is where we give you a definition, a general definition. We'll break that down in future episodes. And honestly, I'm, I'm the most scared to cover this of anything 
because I don't want to confuse people. I also don't want to lead them astray. And I also know that it's the most controversial thing out there. Particularly when we get into later discussions between, let's just use the two terms that are always bandied about in our neck of the woods, in our part of the, of the southeastern part of the United States. You have a war, particularly amongst Southern Baptists, over whether you're a Calvinist or a whosoever will may come theology. That's the term that's often used. I don't like that term, but that's here and there. I didn't define it. Most of those people, most of those preachers define it themselves. I don't like those terms because I'm not strictly a Calvinist, nor am I strictly a five-point only. I mean, <laughs> who was it? Was it Pastor Tom that says, and if, there were, if, they found an, if they found three more points and became an eight-point Calvinist, I'd be an eight-point guy? If there were three more added yes. to Tulip, I'd be eight points he's, because the doctrines of grace are the doctrines of grace. They are biblical. <laughs> he said, I'm a seven-point Calvinist in case there's two they missed. Yeah, that's what it was. It was funny. Killed me. He told me and, that one day before church. And it, 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 you know, and I lean where he's at. To be honest with you, it's uh, well. It, it's I, I had someone tell me at this point, quite a few years ago. It's before you and I met. It was before I ever came to the church that we would later both serve on staff at. It told me that I was a Calvinist, and I said, "I'm not a Calvinist." He said, "You are. You just don't know it yet." He goes, "You, you don't know it yet. You'll, you'll develop into one." I still hate to call myself that because because I know. Because I know growing up in what I grew, grew up in, okay, IFB, and because of the background, even in later Southern Baptist churches that I've, that I've served in, either on staff or just been a member of, that that is looked down upon as if it's some kind of, like, you've got, you've got three eyes or something, you know what I'm saying? Or you've got oh, a horn yeah. sticking out of your head, as if it's, they, in fact, I've even heard it said that it's a satanic doctrine. Have you ever heard it called and that? That's big in IFB circles. That, yeah, that is it is. Really, they call it the really satanic big. doctrine and, and of Calvinism. I still, I think you instructed me or, 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 or pointed me this direction. I still like the view that um, Al Mohler takes. He he calls himself a uh, Augustinian. Yeah, you know, because you got to be careful. Because that's hundreds of years before Calvin, and Calvin recognized yeah, you, that he owed a great debt to to Augustine. Well, and you got to be careful too, because a lot of the reformers. I always tell everybody, I'm. Yeah, I do. I agree with the reformers, but I stopped short of baptizing babies. Yeah. You know, you and I had a discussion about this other And day. another issue is ecclesiastical issues in the church. Sure. Most of them and hold to synods and having bishops and overseers and things like that. They were Catholic, and they couldn't let go of some of the Catholic traditions. Yeah. Um, you know, Luther still believed in the, uh, the, the communion was a literal yeah. blood and body and blood of Christ, and... You know, Zwingli, we talked about earlier, Zwingli. But he didn't take the Eucharist as um, transubstantiation. He broke from that. It wasn't, it was a different, the Lutheran, of all the reformers, the Lutheran view is, is the strangest. It's the closest to Catholicism, and yet at the same time, it's different because it's not transubstantiation. But he believes in the, what they call the actual presence, I believe is how he put it. The actual presence. Uh, what does that have to yeah. do with what our topic is? But we're well, always talking. No, we're we're always talking history. I don't know why you can't get around it. And, and, yeah, we're discussing the reformers and all this. This is kind of an overview because it was important to them. The the it was important to them to get the view of Christ right, and that's why 
Luther, when he breaks, he breaks. But, you, you know, when he breaks Catholic Church, it's because of what he reads in Romans and Galatians. And that's a good segue into Galatians. Because when we get to, when we begin to talk about soteriology, this is a battle that Paul was encountering. We see it throughout his letters. And in the letter to Galatians, remember who he was battling? Yeah. The Judaizers. Right. And they believed in circumcision. They believed that there was a work, something that we do to contribute to our salvation. Yeah, and they were they were bringing extra work into the the grace of Christ. That there's something yes. you need more than that. You need more than faith. You need more than repentance. You need to have this other thing. There has to be something else. These were reformed Jews, right? It, not in the modern mm-hmm. sense of reformed Jew, Jew, Judaism. I mean, they were Reformed Jews in the sense that they had been Old Testament Jews, and now they were New Testament Jews, and in that they were now born again. Paul wasn't telling them, no, you're not saved. He was saying, no, you're, you're putting a burden on these Gentiles. You're telling these Gentiles they need to become Jews in order to become Christians. And that's simply not true. You know, Peter had already said, well, I, I, God gave me the vision. All, all animals are now clean for us. We can eat whatever we can eat. Whatever we can stomach and keep down, we can, we're allowed to eat it. God has said... I've put this on this blanket, and whatever I have, what I have now told you is clean. You cannot call unclean. So he, throwing out the legalism of Judaism, well, that included the fact that Gentiles had never been circumcised. The males weren't circumcised, but now they were telling them, "You need, you know, you want to get, you want to become part of this Christian thing." Well, we're Jews, we're saved, but we're Jews. You need to get circumcised. Your males need to get circumcised. You need to start circumcising your babies. What would later happen? You would have, yeah. Believers, con- converts can be baptized, but you then then you need to baptize all your babies, right, and your children, mm-hmm. whether they believe or not. You need to graft them in. It's this whole idea of grafting on and grafting in. That is legalizing. That is the same thing the Judaizers were doing. So the same the same problematic issues of theology that were occurring in in the first century A.D. in the early church. I'm talking thirty years after Christ's death or less. They were already happening then. They're still happening today because that's what Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and various other sects approve. And there are some people who are Reformed that do place too great an emphasis on infant baptism. It's not... It, Typically the Presbyterian. Yeah. And it's not. they're not saying it's the same thing as Catholicism. They're not saying it saves you. No. But they're saying it is the sign of the covenant. Well, how's that any different than telling somebody in the first century, well, now that you're part of this, you need to be circumcised. To me, it's adding to. You're adding to salvation. Well, and if you take it to, yeah, you're dead on on that because it's adding to. But now you're take to the legalist view that that we encounter here, and there's all these non-biblical attributes that are attached to you must do this once you're saved. And and look, once we say we are a new creation, we are a new creature, we, we love the things of God, we want the things of God, we desire the things of God. But I don't have to wear pants outside when I go outside in the summer. All right. You know, I don't I don't ha- I can wear shorts to go play golf. Um so they've attached these man I don't have to read the King James Bible. Uh women don't have to not cut their hair. You don't have to wear a T shirt and then put another overshirt over it that covers your entire arms, rolled down to the to the wrist, buttoned down, sure. and tucked into your pants while wearing a belt, while wearing socks and shoes and long pants, correct? Absolutely. And it's 120 degrees up in the shade. No, but there are groups of Christians, and some of them are truly born again. 
but they've added to it. They've created a legal system that says, uh, in order to be separate, come out from among you them and be you separate, says the Lord, which, by the way, is Old Testament. I'm not saying the principle doesn't hold true for Christians. I'm saying it's a general principle. It's not specific to following kosher laws. There's also no no particular holiness code for the New Testament church that says, okay, everyone's hair must be a certain length as a male. Every woman's hair must be a certain length as a, as a female or never touched at all as a female. And that everyone must wear a certain amount of clothing in order to be holy. Now, I think it's one of those things like, okay... In 1972 and 73, when they were hearing the case on uh, what would be called the Deep Throat case, I'm not trying to be vulgar, but it's the, it's the, it's the Supreme Court ruling on obscenity and on, on interstate pornography. When the Supreme Court was hearing that, one of the justices said, and I quote, I don't know how to define it, but I know what it is when I see it. He was talking about obscenity or what is pornography. And I don't know how to define it, but I don't know how you would define it, but I know what it is when I see it. It's the same thing with what is too much flesh showing on a man or a woman in the sense of as a Christian being dressed a certain way and being out in public. You know what it is. When you're making other people uncomfortable or you yourself would be uncomfortable in a certain situation seeing that person, then they're, they're not wearing enough clothes. But I'm not mm-hmm. going to go so far as to say everything must be, the skirt must be two in, the hem of the dress and the skirt must be two inches below the knee. The man's shorts should never be more than any shorter than halfway between the kneecap and that sort of thing. I'm not going to go that far, but I grew up in a system where that was true. They actually would measure. And if you weren't, I went to a, a school where if everything wasn't a certain length or a certain whatever, you'd be sent home. Yeah. And Man, so- I got in trouble for putting gel in my hair in the 1980s and having my hair spiked up. It wasn't spiked like punk rock. I didn't have a mohawk, but my hair was... And you've seen me wear it now even with the front sticking up, right? I've worn it mm-hmm. to church. The preacher told me, go to the bathroom, run your hands through your hair, put some water on it, whatever you do. Get that down. We don't have, we don't have punk hair in this school. And I'm like, this is not well, punk hair. But I did it because I was compliant. But uh, it was stupid. When I went home and told my parents, they were like, yeah, uh, I don't agree with that. You're not looking like a punk. And they attach it all to, mo- to salvation, essentially. It's all somehow tied into soteriology and the doctrine of salvation, somehow. Because there's two types of salvation, essentially, right? There's faith-based and works-based, correct, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. As a general, yeah, if we're summing up all of the levels of how people view how you be saved in any religion. Yeah, cause because there's other religions that believe in a have a soteriology, right? Mm-hmm. There are other religions that have a soteriology. Islam has a soteriology. Judaism has a form of soteriology. It's much more liberal. Um, you have other groups that have a soteriology, including cultic, nominally Christian-type cults like uh, seven. I'm just going to say it, Seventh-day Adventists, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, and yeah, Latter-day Saints, Mormonism. Those groups, they, they're not Christian folks. They're not truly Christian, okay? And they have a form of soteriology as well. There's... The main difference between whether it's Christian sex or nominally Christian sex versus even other things such as Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, so many other isms, is that man is attempting to attain perfection and God's approval, or the God's approval, depending on if it's polytheistic or monotheistic. And man is trying to reach to God. Biblical salvation, Christianity, is that God came down to man. There's the big difference. God did all the work because man couldn't work to reach God. The Old Testament shows us that. 
The law convicts us of sin. Romans said that. Outside of the law, we, we, we are innocent. But God sent his law to convict man of sin. Not to save them, but to point them to salvation. Now, I'm not trying to say that nobody in the Old Testament was saved. Thousands, maybe millions of people during the Old Testament era were saved. We don't know how many. We don't know how many are saved today. The point is, there were people being saved, but how did they get saved? Faith, They're still obedience, full, repentance. looking forward to the cross. Yes, it was still a, a redemptive plant act of God, right? Those sacrifices of bulls and goats, the, the red heifers, the spotless lambs, the scapegoats, all these things that occurred, right, were signs and shadows and foreshadowings of things that were to come in Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law, not the obliteration of it. God's law is the same. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But what he did was he gave us a new covenant. Hence the term Old Testament, New Testament. Old Covenant, New Covenant. We had the Old Covenant, and now we have the New Covenant. And in that sense, we've been, you and I have been talking about this lately. We are covenantal theologians in the sense of that. We believe there is a second the, theology, the second but, covenant. Which, that covenant well, is all the grace of God. And there was an Old well, Covenant that, that involved works. And the only one that ever really did it was Adam, and he failed. Well, I start to say, let's let's divide, let's divide yeah, those. Yeah, yeah, we wanted to find that because there's multiple reformed views of the covenants. We know that. Yeah, there there is um, uh, views that that say covenant theology, multiple multiple covenants. When we talk about covenant theology, I could give you two covenants, and I, I could let you attach the third. That's the covenant of redemption that the, the inner trinitarian got together. There was the plan for salvation to save the elect. But when we talk about covenant theology, it's really two. It's covenant works and covenants of grace. Covenant of works never worked. It was Adam, as you said. It was was Adam. Adam failed. Uh, Once Adam failed, the covenant of grace began. Now, there's multiple covenants. For by one man or through one man, sin entered the world. And after that, we have all sinned. And then through one man, sin is going to be forgiven for those that are in him. Otherwise, the other one's going to be... The second Adam, the new Adam. And I think in our phone conversation, we talked about that. The idea of Jesus fulfilling all these different different things in the Old Testament, the first Adam couldn't do the work. The second Adam did it and completed the work. So when he said, it is finished on the cross, he really meant it, didn't he, Chalen? Yeah, to tell us now, it is yeah, finished. It is it's finished. done. It's, it's done. absolutely done. The debt was paid in full. Yeah. We owe nothing because we couldn't pay anything anyway. We never could buy our way into heaven. Couldn't work our way into heaven. We can't crawl on our knees enough confessing our sins, beating our chest and saying anything. We have to rest in Christ. Our salvation is through him and him alone. And so when, when you look at those two covenants and everything's take shape in light of those two covenants, and when you read a lot of things in the New Testament— then you begin to see the types, pictures that we always talk about of Christ, how he was prophesied and pointed to in the Old Testament, i.e., therefore, the ones in the Old Testament were saved by the coming of Christ. Yeah, Isaiah 53, you know, you and I have talked about multiple times. John MacArthur does such a good job teaching through that, but that cross looks, or uh, that passage looks forward to the cross and then and then looks back at the cross yet at the same time. Yeah. It's an amazing passage of Scripture written 700 years before the actual crucifixion of Christ. Proof, proof of so, miraculous prophecy, correct? 
Yes. I mean, it's the now, but the not yet that you and I talk yeah. about a lot. That, that, that prophecy was yet to come. There's prophecies that have already been fulfilled, but that prophecy in that time was yet to come. And it shows the veracity of Scripture. It's 100% believable, you know, and it's truthful. And that is the problem that so many modernists and postmodernists have, is they can't accept that Isaiah could see that vision 700 years before the birth of Christ. And the New Testament yeah. writers would say, oh, it's all fulfilled in him. This was what they the, were talking about. The tapestry of the Old Testament is Christ, or as Todd Friel always said, the, and I've heard other people say it, but Todd Friel was one I heard to say, that scarlet thread woven throughout the Old Testament is Christ. Yeah. I mean, and he actually wrote a book on Christ in the Old Testament, just a bunch of typologies and shadows. And so that's where covenant theology comes in, is we look at those two covenants. And covenant of grace begins with the fall of Adam. But then you have the other covenants in there. You've got you've got the Abrahamic covenant. Sure. They all fall into that sub there are subcategory covenants of grace essentially. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Then then you're just following down God's redemptive plan throughout the Old and New Testaments, which culminates in in the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. I'm sure we'll later do an episode on what is repentance and what it means and what the definitional thing is. But if if you're going to give me a bird's eye view of salvation, Chalen, I'm dying, okay? I'm dying. We are all dying, actually, one day at a time. Because when your man that's going to born is a few days and he's going to die, right? Our life is just a vapor or like a withering grass in the sun. So if I'm dying and I say to you, Chalen, I don't know what to do and I can't face death alone, what must I do to be saved, as the Philippian jailer did when he was getting ready to attempt suicide? And Paul and Silas called out to him and said, No, don't, don't harm yourself. We're here. He witnesses this miracle. Obviously, the Holy Spirit had touched him in some way, and he understood this was supernatural. So, obviously, if I'm asking you this, then I probably am under conviction of sin, correct? So, if I, say to, if I say to you, what must I do to be saved? And I'm serious because it's my last breath. I'm going to die soon. How do you get that message to me across in the simplest manner? Well, before we get to that, let me. This would not be what I would be doing, but, but on for this question, yeah. let me say a preamble to my answer. Sure. So we got to look at a couple different things here to have a, a biblical view of this. And man left to his own devices—that is, no intervention by God, no drawing, no nothing. Um, God only wants, or I'm sorry, man only wants what is opposite of God until there is a, i.e., what you said, some type of conviction where the Holy Spirit and God does the drawing, the Holy Spirit does the drawing, the convicting, Christ does the salvific work. Um, until that is done through the inner Trinitarian work of the, all the Trinity working together to accomplish this salvation, uh, the words that I would speak would be in vain. But I don't know that. We're still to speak those words. And sure. So let me be clear. It's not like I... You know, am a hyper Calvinist by no, no. no means, and you know, no, we're we're so talking we're still, about evangelism here, and that's and we are called to evangelize the world. So, so some years ago, there was a friend of ours uh, was on was was passing, and and I was a young Christian. And I look back, and I I probably didn't handle it correctly. But anyway, if I had to go back and tell myself now, how would you handle that situation? Um, that situation is you have somebody passing in front of you and deathbed confessions, you know, we, we want to be cautious 
but we don't want to be cautious because it's up to God. So you want to be cautious, but yet not cautious. You know, you still want to freely share the gospel. So sure. that being said, once somebody understands they're a sinner and once somebody understands that there's God's law and once they understand that there's payment, and that's something that's done really, really simple. We could use our judicial system here. If you, if you steal something, then there's got to be repercussions for that theft that's been done. There has to be repercussions. Um, so you're going to be in jail. You're going to face time. You're going to do something. But however, as a sinner, we know that our judgment or our punishment for the sins committed against God is eternal. That it's an eternal separation being tormented by a non-consuming fire. We know that. Scripture talks about that. And so once you realize that you've come under conviction of sin, that you realize that you have sinned and broken the law of God, and you understand the the punishment is eternal in very brief terms. I'm not saying... And deserved. That, and deserve because you've recognized that you are breaking that law, right? Yeah, and and but you realize there was a perfect man in Christ who lived absolutely a spotless life. He's called the spotless Lamb of God. One of my favorite sections in the Bible. But God, being yeah. rich in mercy, right? And so <laughs> we understand Christ lived this this perfect life, sinless life, but yet He is. Beaten, punished, because we always say we believe in the death, burial, and resurrection. Great. But if he doesn't live the sinless life prior to that, then that death, burial, and resurrection is, is, is just insufficient. But because he lived a sinless life, that death, burial, and resurrection was a satisfaction on God's behalf that he will take that as a payment in our place, i.e. penal substitutionary atonement. See, there was a reason in the Old Testament laws that it was a one-year-old male lamb that was spotless and without yes. blemish. This was not a lamb that had, for one thing, reproduced yet. This was not a lamb. This is a lamb that was not a baby. It wasn't on its mother's milk, but it wasn't an adult either. It wasn't allowed, It had not been allowed to go out into the fold and do its own thing yet and reproduce and all that. So the whole point of Jesus being the Passover lamb is that he was without spot or blemish. That means he was without sin, by the way. So guess what? When we pass and we stand before God, what God sees is Christ's imputed righteousness to us. And what he sees on Christ is our imputed sin to him because that payment was satisfied on the cross. So do you you say to that person, just ask Jesus into your heart, give your life to Jesus? Yeah, yeah, no. No, Um, okay. Because I'm asking you. We're going to later explain why we think this is a better way to to explain it to people. But for now, I just want you to do that explanation. I'm giving you this long preamble to get to it. So if we're talking about it and somebody, and and they've obviously come to that state to understand that, it's one of those, there is no magical um, formula. I am not the one that can pronounce them saved. You know, it's not like we could repeat after me and, you know, you write it in your Bible and you're saved today. We don't have that ability. You have to cry out to God. The publican and the Pharisee, the publican simply cries out, God, oh, forgive me, a sinner. And that man went home what? Condemned? He went home justified. So it is as simple as... I have told people, if you understand you're a sinner, then you cry out to God. You beg him and ask him to save you. 
And what does it say when you come to that willingness place? What is what does scripture say? He is willing to save those. He's not going to cast those out. He said he will not turn away from any of them. No. And if you get to that point, it is a work of God. Then we're a lot of people once once that salvific nature occurs, then you see change in their life, if you will. Not instantaneously. We're not all Paul on a Damascus road. Sanctification, some of us are a little harder-headed than others. Yep, myself included. Uh, Mine as well. And so that's when you see that lifelong, I know a lot of people don't like the word, but you know how I am with it, the perseverance. Right. The perseverance that only comes through Christ as we walk. But it, it, if we're talking about just the mode of salvation, that you know, now we're talking about sanctification, glorification, but if we're talking about the mode of justification, it is simply a crying out, recognizing that you are a sinner before a holy God, and the only way you're acceptable before that holy God is if you have Christ's righteousness imputed to you. That's as simple as it in a nutshell. All that preamble to get to that, that little three-second statement. And you cry out to God. I, I don't know another way to put it. It's it's not the Billy Graham rule. Do you you acknowledge you're a sinner in your heart? I mean, if I gotta if I gotta get out a hell free card, I mean, and you just scare tactic me into it. Yeah, do you it's it becomes that emotional manipulation. You know that. You and I've talked about that a thousand times, and you see thousands of people uh, converted on simple emotional manipulations because you pulled on their heartstrings and. You see that all the time. Yeah. I thank you and I had this conversation. You will see when you see sometimes a church has X amount of people saved. If you go back and listen weeks and months prior to that, it's a buildup. Right. Until it gets to this massive one day kind of deal and, and hundreds of people come. I mean, it, 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 but there was an emotional buildup to get to the, the culminating event, you know. You know, I once explained it kind of like this. In, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you constantly see the, in the letters to the seven churches, Jesus is speaking, and he says, to him that overcomes, I will give a crown of righteousness. To him that overcomes, I will, exactly, right? You know what I'm talking about. And I said, so what is this? Who is the overcomer? I took them to 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child or the Son. And that's, that's Christ. You're loving the Christ. Born of Him. God has given you new birth. Right? Yes. That's what that term born again means. You're, it's given from above. It's actually better rendered, yeah, and no one ever does it in this way in English translations. We use the term born again, but it... It could be born of above or born of heaven. Um, yeah. And by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. So these are proofs of your salvation, right? You see this outward working, working out your own salvation in fear and trembling. This is a way of looking at it. It's not about works for your salvation. No. It's showing outwardly. This is a sign that God gives the faithful is that they love each other. And, and Chayla and I have told you many times, I love you, man. I love you like a brother. You, you're like, I never had a brother, personally. I mean, I have sisters. I have no brothers. Let me send you some hearts. <laughs> but you are my brother. No, but it is. It is through a Christ. love. And we are family now. We are of yeah. that family of God. We've been adopted in. And that's what oh, you know, all things that we'll cover later in Soteriology. Like you said, this is the airplane view looking down. 
We love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. What commandments? What commandments? That's the moral law that yeah. is spoke about a lot. That you love, love God first, and then you love you... others, right? Yep. Because you love everyone as if you loved yourself. Because no man hates himself. We're all selfish. So learn to love people with the same love we love ourselves. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Jesus is the overcomer, right? The very next verse says, But who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, Spirit, water, and blood. And the three are in agreement. And if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given him concerning his Son. The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. This life is in his Son. And he who has the Son has the life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe. In the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know that you have eternal life, not guess that you have eternal life. You can have that assurance. He who overcomes, he who perseveres, that's the term used in, in, in the Reformation theology, right? The perseverance of the saints. Then James talks about a Is lot. overcoming through what? The one who overcame the world. And who overcame the world? Jesus Christ. So who actually overcomes? Christ. Jesus did it for us. And he's going to carry us through. It's still eternal security, as most of our Arminians would say. But not all, because a lot of Arminians don't believe in eternal security. I'll, I'll get to that later. But the ones that do believe in eternal security and are very strict on this. later today. <laughs> and, right. And a lot of these are uh, very strictly whosoever will may come. Let me say to you, brother, we're actually saying the same thing. But we're saying it from a more biblical perspective. Because I just read to you from 1 John, in answering the questions from, from chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, who is the one that overcomes? the one that believes in Christ. When the publican fell on his face in the synagogue and said, pounded his chest and would not even look up to heaven and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He already knew he was lost. He'd already had that conviction. He confessed his sin to Christ, to God, and he was, as Christ said, justified. He left there justified. He had, he had done away. He had come with his sin and brought it to God and walked away from that. That's faith. That's repentance. So what you've just encapsulated in your discussion on how to talk to someone who's dying or whatever. I use that extreme example because you'll hear that brought up a lot, right? The deathbed confessions. I use that on you on purpose. I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but I, I did want to because I knew you would bring it out, right? I, I, I know your theology. What you presented, Chalen, in your both your preamble and in your discussion was the law of God and the gospel of God. So when you hear law and gospel, that's it. We're not adding works to salvation. We're not adding the law to salvation. We're saying that salvation is a fulfillment of the law. But, but we used to hear a man say all the time, can't ever get a man saved till you get him lost. A man has to know he's lost. Of, I can't. Right. He, We're not God doing anything. God will draw a man to conviction. And then those that he has called will repent, will confess Christ before men. They will submit to baptism. They will submit to discipleship and the eldership of the church. And they will become sanctified in time. And then one day, 
they, along with all the rest of us that believe, will be glorified, will be given a glorified body, a new state. So we have that threefold era of salvation. And I used to say it's past tense, present tense, future tense. They're all simultaneous because Christ's already done everything, right? It's already been written in the past, and we're just living it out in the present, and we will, we'll be, we will be there in the future. It is justification, sanctification, glorification. We will definitely get into all those things in future episodes. I had one more thing concerning the etymology of the word soteriology because that's kind of a weird word, right? We throw out these theological yeah. terms all the time, and, and a lot of times we just use them, and we never stop to think, does anybody even know what this stuff is? Well, I looked it up on an et- etymology site, and soteriology is a noun. It, it can be in reference to health, according to an 1847 dictionary entry. In 1864, discussing it from the theological term, it's in reference to salvation. In German, it's called soteriologie, from Greek soterio or soteros, and it means preservation, salvation, save, preserve, from the word sos, which means safe or healthy. It's of uncertain origin, although it is a Greek word, it's an uncertain origin. The pi root is thought to be T-E-U-E-2, and pi, for those that don't really study etymology, pi is this, it's a, it's a, it's a predication that, that linguists have today, that, that there was an, a single Indo-European language at one time, for those that would later become the European languages, and those in certain parts of Asia, such as what we now would call uh, India, pa- Pakistan, Afghanistan, areas like that, the Eurasian era of the continent. Most of the languages, the, the Slavic, the German, and even the Romance languages, and the Greek, are all thought to have descended from this one language. And so they, you find that's why you find a lot of crossover when you start studying languages. Certain words are similar no matter what. Which and that originally is thought to have meant to swell or be strong, and of course ology comes from the word logos and all that, and, and we've already said what that that is. It just means a branch of knowledge or science. It comes from the word word or source, so it just means study of or science of uh, sotera, which means this salvation. So I I just thought I would throw that out there. Well. And I think one of the things that we'll probably go, I don't know, we're, I'll throw this out. I don't know where we'll go to it next. I don't know where we're going next. But one of the things we gotta, we'll got cover, too, is church history and the heresies. Sure. Because a lot of the stuff we've talked about today, you know, falls under the Trinitarian controversy that was right. one of the first rounds of Nicaea. Yeah. Again, uh, we we're, have, we're we, assuming Trinitarian theology, which is, I think, orthodox and proper, and I think it's biblical. But... It took a few hundred years for all this stuff to be ironed out. They were more worried about, in, in, in originally, just dealing with, uh, did was Jesus a real man? Was he also the Son of God? The Christological argument came first, but that led to the Trinitarian mm-hmm. argument and all that. And they are definitely combined, and with, from that came well, the, the soteriology. Well, you have the Arius controversy, the Arianism there. It's like, was, uh, are they, uh, con? what is it, con, consubstantial? Are you know the the Trinitarian? Are they consubstantial? And and then we'll move through. You know there was the um, oh what was the D O N T A I S T those uh I said I can't remember. I just went blank. Donatist. Don- huh? Donatist. Yes, they believe there was no salvation outside the church. That's another controversy that come on the early church fathers. And then we get to the big one that kind of leads to where we're at today in a sense more so than the other ones. The Pelagianism. Yeah. You know, uh, we're going to Pelagianism, then there becomes semi-Pelagianism, 
and you look at Pelagianism up against Augustinianism. Um, and it's sort of and, it's sort of a a byproduct of antinomianism, where you kind yes. of separate the new from the Old Testament, and you say the law isn't important at all. But again, we just we just presented sal- a clear message of salvation, saying that the law of God has to convict of sin first before you can be saved. But once you're convicted, then you have to be drawn to something. And what are you drawn to? Christ. Well, look, I just told you that there's two covenants, covenant of the words, covenants of grace. And then I put the covenants of grace with, during the time of when Moses got the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. You know, as the covenant of grace, because the law was used to what? The law was used to convict us. Right. The law was never meant to save. But today it's just come as you are. Isn't that what you always hear? Come as you are. God loves you just like you are. No, he loves you in spite of who you are. And if and he's he drawing you for salvation, he will change you. And if there's no change, then there's no salvation. I'm sorry. I, you know, Adrian Rogers is one not he. I, I love Adrian Rogers. We differ on some major, on especially soteriology. We do differ as far as the mode. He's kind of a. It amazes me. But didn't you tell me that Lawson used to serve with him? Yes, but Lawson was also Armenian at that time. Okay. Um. Lawson set under Adrian Rogers, and he's still, he's one of the greatest preachers of, of our generation. I mean, he was alive in the early 2000s. But he always, and I've said this multiple times on the show, um, if you could dive into the cesspool of sin, swim there, stay there, and be happy, then you've got a salvific problem. Absolutely. There must be change. And, and now that's not to say you don't fall into that end every now and then, but you want to get out of it as quick as you can. Yeah. I've heard it said and, that, when Paul talks about the sin, the sins that so easily besets us, I've heard it said that what he was talking about is that it was you know he knew this because he experienced it himself that there were certain sins that plagued him all of his life, and he confessed and sins. he did confess them and he did he did he had a repentant heart he did try in the flesh to to not sin, but even with the grace of God there were times that he would go back to the flesh and commit that sin again and then be. Just be heartbroken over it. It's the same way with David. You see David, a man after God's own heart, who constantly had to battle his flesh. And and, yeah. and so I'm not trying to tell somebody that if you commit a sin after being saved that you're lost again. We're not saying that. We're saying, though, that you need to recognize your sin. If you can't even see that it's sin and you're not convicted, then I worry about you. Absolutely. And, and that... And like you said, if you're you know, wallowing in a pig slop... If you're just wallowing in the mud of sin, the filth of sin, and you don't feel anything, check your salvation. Make your calling and election sure, Paul says. What does it always say about a a, a swine will always return to... And, a, yep. a, a, and the a, dog a, returns a, to its vomit. The mire. It re-eats yeah, the its, mire. its own vomit. Yep. Why? Because it's filthy and it doesn't know any better. A sinner, will, a sinner who is not born again will go back to sin. You can't live a fake Christian life forever. It's going to f- catch up with you. Be sure your sins will find you out. Either it's going to become a hardening of the heart where you turn off and God does that for you. He turns it off. You can't be convicted anymore. I do believe that. There's and a sin unto death. There's the, there's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that a person who has been nominally a Christian, someone who's been a church member all their life but not really born again, they're not saved, not converted heart, they eventually become apostate. They either become well, apostate in the sense that they leave the church and they never return, or they're apostate in the sense that their heart is sealed over and they're under a curse from and God. Those, and they will still go to church till the day they die, but they'll still die and split hell wide open. And preacher, understand this. They sat in your con- congregation, and not everybody that repeated after what you told them to yeah. is saved. No, no. There um, are goats among the it, sheep. It, there are there are tares among the wheat. That's what those kingdom yeah. uh, principles were being taught in, 
in Jesus' parables. Well, also look at the parable of the sower. Uh, I don't like they People always used to the parable of the sower. It's not about the sower. The sower is irrelevant of the situation. What he do? He went to bed. Mm-hmm. I mean, he been during the. I mean, it's about the soil. The seed is the word of God. It falls on certain soils. Jesus certain tells you it's happen. the word of God. <laughs> it does, and so you see these these people that spring up. Some of them just. Hard rock ain't nothing gonna happen. Some of them they spring up, they're quick, they're the false converts, and they fizzle out real quick. Guess what? They wouldn't save either. You we've, know, we've talked about that in 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 episodes uh, last year and the year before when we first started, where there were so many people in twenty twenty, not twenty nineteen, twenty twenty, and early twenty twenty one who were coming out as deconstructing their faith or as as leaving the faith. And right, and it was the one guy that wrote the book on uh, kiss dating goodbye and all that. Um, a young man yeah, who was weird. ordained very young, and then I told you he was hanging out at a rainbow parade at a gay pride thing, and apologizing to people for ever having preached against homosexuality. I said I wouldn't, I wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me a bit. He had separated from his wife and his children. It wouldn't surprise me a bit if someday he doesn't, he doesn't just come out and say I'm a homosexual. The point is, for those people, and there are people praying for him, be converted. You know, I've heard John Cooper and others say I'm praying for you to be saved, but the fact remains that. I don't know if that man will ever be saved. I don't know if he can even be saved at this point. He's, in my opinion, an apostate. He has left the faith. And he left the faith because he was never of us. You know, it says that in, in the Epistle of John. If you go out, they go out from first John, if they go out from among us, if they left because they were never of us. Preachers, like I said, beware. Not everybody that you think is saved is truly in Christ. That's true. Well, I mean, Jesus' own words are a scary thing to those, those of us who try to serve Christ and who also try to teach to understand that not everyone's going to be in that good soil because he says, not every man who comes to me on that day will, and says, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons, perform mighty works? He says, depart from me, I never knew you workers of iniquity, you lawlessness, sin. I never knew you. So they were not, yeah. of, the, they were not of the sheep. What, what Jesus says... I'm the good shepherd, and my sheep hear my voice, and they will not listen to another. Chalen, what's so scary is so many people, including people we used to think were really good preachers and teachers and theologians, are coming out in the last couple of years and saying really bad things. That is, They're not following the good shepherd. So if they're adding to and taking away from Scripture or redefining what Scripture teaches, are they not apostate? Well, look at the following that Stephen Furtick out of Southern Seminary in Louisville has amassed and it is just i mean he has likened himself to god there's so many charlatan type teachings here that you're just like oh you he's got been to hanging be out with td jakes too long and people like that you know he's become part of the he's it, it's worldly and so this this worldliness has infiltrated everything and now i gotta ask because when we see things like that we need to distance ourselves from those people and their ministries because they're false. They're going downhill. They're going downhill. Uh, I want to say this before because I think it's important to be said. Everything we've talked about today and everything we're going to talk about in the future on this is for your edification and our edification. We say everything in love. We are not saying... Uh, when we say, dear preacher, realize that there are lost people in your in your congregation and they're not truly born again... We're not saying you actually have any power to change that. 
What we're saying no. is make sure you're preaching sound doctrine and that your soteriology is directly in line with this word, God's word. Well, because if it's not, you could actually be contributing to leading to false converts. And you don't want that part. You don't want that stigma on your uh, head when you stand before God. Because remember, everyone gives an account of himself before God, even the saved on the day of judgment. But those that have been called to teach and preach or have taken down that responsibility, what does it say about them? They're more scrutinized. Jesus is going to hold you especially accountable for every word or deed James. you said. That's in, yeah, that's in James the book of James. I will say it a little more harsh. Pastor, teacher, do not think your do not think in your arrogance that anything you say or you personally do has anything to do or contribute to somebody's salvation. And do not think that you are the mode at which they are saved. You are merely the instrument that has been given the God-called gift to present the Word of God. You are not the intermediary, the intercession between Christ, you between your congregation and Christ. You are simply the message messenger that is delivering and proclaiming i.e. the herald and i don't mean shout like a trumpet that's not the level of your voice but you are shouting the message that is this whole council of scripture right you are literally shouting and proclaiming not shouting at the top of my lungs you are proclaiming this message that has been given by god do not think you play a part i passed a sign the other day okay and i thought of you the church side said the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, and Jesus needs you. And my exact quote to my wife was, that person needs to reread Scripture, because that is never said in Scripture. A former pastor that I sat under several years ago said, God does not need you to fulfill his plans. I thought that was great. Well, I remember Vody Balcom. Uh, that was, that was Dr. Jerry, and I won't say his last name, but I've told you about him. You never got to hear him preach. And I'm oh, going to yeah. tell you, he, 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 he was good. And he said, God does not need you to fulfill his plans, but don't try to dare think you can resist or stand in his way because you, you'll be the one that suffers for it, not, not him, not his, not his, not his, his goals. The, the things he has ordained are going to come to pass. And he said, if you need an example of that, look in the book of Exodus. <laughs> Vody Bauckham, when he when he got sick and had his heart surgery, he was in the hospital, and he tells this story, and somebody uh, called his wife, and they're like, oh, it's just such a miracle. God's not done with him yet. And his wife intervened and was like, oh, hold on. God don't need him. God can still get his work done. And he said, Vody's in the bed listening, and Vody's going, yeah, but you need me, right? I mean, like, we're still cool. Like, like, like you, you need me. <laughs> and I want to say amen to what you said a while ago about you said I'll be more harsh and then you went on to describe how preachers need to get out of the way and just preach the gospel and not think they have any say over who is and is not converted um, I say amen to that and I want to say thanks bro you did me a solid there by explaining that better than I did yeah, and I, I don't use the <laughs> refer back to the previous episode <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think you know, culture today, reference. Honestly, I, think, I said I'd keep them to a minimum. I didn't say I wouldn't do it at all. <laughs> for today, I think that's about as thirty thousand foot view without going more in depth as we can get. Yeah, and we literally I mean, defined it. I mean, we actually read two different definitions about it: one from Oxford Languages and one from from an etymology site. And there's we could have used other and better, more scriptural uh, definitions, but that's the literally the word itself and what it means. 
And now we've also talked about, like you said, the, the bird's eye view of it. We'll dig deep and go into other things. I don't know what our what our next one will be. I don't know. We'll talk. We'll talk offline and, and decide for ourselves where we want to go next, where you feel like we need to go next, you know, digging into this. We've, we've left it open, but there's so many things we could do. And by the way, I will say this. There's still time for you people to do this if you want to do this. You can go online to www.dumbspeak.com www.dumbspeak.com and you can go to comments at dumbspeak and leave us an email if you have questions comments on this or suggestions if you say listen i want you to look at this book this article i want you to look at this view and explain it because there's time for us to do the research it won't be necessarily be the next episode but it would be time for us while we're doing this as as chaylin has already said I almost called you my son's name. As Chalen has already said, we are being very loose with this. We are not we are not tied down to the three-part series like we do on a lot of previous doctrines and things. We are going to leave it open. And we may continue with this the rest of the year, and it could go longer. I don't know. Because, because as Chalen said, we have so many things, branches of this that we can get off into and do want to cover. We do want to cover the heresies in the church history and how this, and how it all leads up to this and why we are Trinitarian, and why we are um, more or less Reformed in our views. I, I mean, I'll, I'll stake that claim. I am more or less Reformed, especially when it comes to soteriology. I, am, I take a, a Reformation view of that. Um, and, and we'll say why we believe it, but we want to discuss the history so that you understand that we're not, we don't have the only view. There are other views. There are plenty of other views. You may be listening to this and have another view. We respect you. We respect you, and we, ex- we expect the same from you and hope for the same from you. But yeah, I think we've done all we can do today, but I did want to say that I want our listeners to let us know. Uh, Chalen keeps an eye on the emails, and he will let me know if there's some if there's a comment or anything that we need to cover in a in an upcoming episode on this. But I want you people to interact with us and let us know what you what you what you need to know. There may be something that you specifically need us to cover. So that's your way of communicating with us is comments at dumbspeak.com. Anything else, Chalen? I am. That is it. I mean, that's all. If I do anything, we're going to run off in a big discussion again. <laughs> okay, then we'll leave it there because we've gone almost an hour. Uh, we love you and we're praying for you. I hope you do the same for us. Support us in 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 your prayers. Uh, we don't ask you. We we don't ask you people for money. That's not what we're doing this about. But we do ask you. We do covet your prayers. That's one thing we do. We want you to be in prayer for us. And you know, and honestly, we we do want a dialogue. We don't get enough input from you guys we don't get enough email and enough and enough and enough response and i actually want that i want you guys to interact interact with us and i'm using the generic guys male and female folks not everybody's a guy you guys can uh, i just said you guys again it's just a colloquialism i use but people that are listening to this, you want a bigger shovel yeah there you go people that are listening to this humans please feel free to comment and talk to us folks. you know it, and and folks there you go folks y'all Y'all, y'all come on back. And until next time, I'm Roy. I'm Jalen. God bless.